everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. My name is Ross McKeechee, your host. Today, I'm delighted that we're joined by Stephen Mitchell. Before we get to his formal intro, some Banyan announcements. Although we have people joining us from all over the world, the physical location of Banyan Books in Vancouver is on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Banyan Books and Sound is in its 50th anniversary year this year, 50 years as Canada's spiritual and healing resource. We've been local and independent since 1970. Please, everybody, support your local independent bookstores. Every time you make a purchase from Banyan Books, you support all kinds of wonderful free programming like tonight's event. You can visit us at banyan.com or you can come and drop in in person at the corner of 4th and Dunbar in Kitsilano. Our guest this evening, Stephen Mitchell, was born in Brooklyn in 1943 educated at Amherst, the Sorbonne, and Yale, and de-educated through intensive Zen training. He's married to Byron Katie, founder of The Work, with whom he co-authored the bestsellers Loving What Is and A Thousand Names for Joy. A world-renowned translator and scholar, our distinguished guest, has brought to life a wide range of literary classics, including the Tao Te Ching, Gilgamesh, the Bhagavad Gita, and the poetry of Rainer Maria Rilke. He is the author and editor of many anthologies, books of nonfiction, fiction, poetry, and children's books, including Dropping Ashes on the Buddha, The Enlightened Heart, Parables and Portraits, Meetings with the Archangel, The Gospel According to Jesus, and the way of forgiveness. Today, Stephen Mitchell is with Banyan Books in conversation about his latest book titled The First Christmas, A Story of New Beginnings. The First Christmas is a beautiful reimagining of the Annunciation and Nativity stories that will enchant and astonish readers. In this book, Mitchell has woven together Judeo-Christian, Zen Buddhist, and Hindu wisdom into an uplifting and readable story that brings to life the characters in a way that is both surprising and illuminating for students, practitioners, believers, and non-believers of all faiths and backgrounds. This book is a wonderful read, pointing us to what is universally true and real. If you'd like to learn more about our guest and his work, please visit his website at stephenmitchellbooks.com. Stephen Mitchell, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, uh, Ross, it's my pleasure. This is actually my first event after the pandemic. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing for me to be with people in this way. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, that's excellent. That's really yeah. great. Stephen, I... Um, I, I watched an interview that you did a few years ago with David LaRoche on his program called Paradox on YouTube. And in that, you said that all of the great stories you're drawn to and have worked on are the same essential story. It's the story of suffering and the end of suffering. How does that, how is that also true for this latest book, uh, the story of Christmas or sorry, the first Christmas? Yes. Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, in the gospel accounts, there are, there are two accounts in the gospels, one in Matthew, one in Luke, and the other gospels don't mention any birth story. Uh, so it's obvious that these are stories that were invented by the two um, evangelists to, to answer certain questions that the Christian community was asking uh, at that point in the year 80 or 90 uh, of the common era. Um, so, you you don't get a sense of much suffering in the um, in the originals except for Joseph's predicament. He's suffering greatly from jealousy and disappointment, etc. But um, what I've done here is uh, 
the category, if if you need a category, uh, is called midrash. It's a it's a Hebrew word that um, is used about uh, creative transformations of biblical stories or biblical verses. So in expanding the nativity and annunciation stories, I've really gone into each separate character in the story. And when I when I entered the character of Mary, I I could see how uh, what was implied in the original story. In the original, he, she seems kind of like the the good little Catholic girl, the 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 Catholic schoolgirl wearing a uh, a plaid skirt reaching her knees and white socks and, you know, uh, the good girl. So the angel says you're going to become pregnant and give birth to the Messiah. And she basically nods and says, okay. But when you enter her situation as a young, very young Jewish woman of age 12 or 13 or 14, um, in the year three or four uh, before the common era and you realize what it must have meant to be engaged to somebody that she loved and Joseph um, in later Christian tradition is portrayed as an old man so that there shouldn't be any any hint of sexuality between them uh, because the church was very invested in Mary's perpetual virginity but going back to the actual what the actual characters would have looked and felt and, and uh, felt like any Jewish girl betrothed and in love with her fiance would have had a tremendous problem with the angel's news because uh, she was being asked to, to say yes to a pregnancy that had nothing to do with the man she's in love with. Not only that, but uh, as Kierkegaard pointed out, I have a beautiful quote from him at the beginning. The angel, Mary was the only one to whom the angel appeared. So the news that this was a holy thing, that she was going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit, was only said to her. And everyone else in the village, including her parents, her family, and Joseph, wouldn't have been privy to that information. So she would have been seen universally as a whore, somebody who got pregnant outside of marriage and somebody who wasn't even honest about it um, in telling the news to people because she wouldn't have been able to talk about an angelic visitation. It would have, they would have thought she had gone crazy. So here's where the suffering comes in. Her choice ultimately comes to be between saying yes and accepting what the angel lays out for her, what God intends for her, and her loyalty and love to her fiancé. And when she says yes to it uh, at the end of the of my chapter in, the, in this book, she says yes with a full understanding that it's the end of her life as she knows it, that everybody she loves will despise her. And she'll have to leave the, the town of uh, Nazareth and find her way, a way to earn her living and support the baby, et cetera, et cetera. Because she couldn't, she wouldn't have been able to consider that Joseph could possibly forgive her. She, she would just assume that this was something unforgivable and that as a righteous man, he wouldn't even have the, the, the desire to um, forgive her. Um, so that's where the suffering comes in and, and the end of suffering as well, because she, she comes to, being a person of very pure heart, she comes to a place where her will becomes, where God's will becomes her will and she gives herself to it entirely with all the consequences that she's imagining. So that's suffering and the end of suffering. And and for all the characters in one sense, um, it's true, uh, even for my little visionary donkey at the end of the book, um, who is very put off by um, all the angelic visitors who don't nod to her and, and, and acknowledge her. Uh, so she's a 
pretty um, bristly character, and I love ending the book with her. It's a really wonderful cast of characters. And if I can share a quote from the foreword, you said, in writing this book, I wanted to see where the givens of the nativity story would lead. My only agenda was to inhabit the characters. How was that process for you? What was the process for you in inhabiting each one of these characters? You really got inside that their, pro, their process that they would have been going through at that time. Yeah, it was a fascinating experience for me. Um, um, I started with the innkeeper. There is no innkeeper in the gospel stories, although there is an inn. So the fact that there's an inn implies that there's an innkeeper. And um, I wanted to uh, explore what it would have been like. In, uh, in most people's imagination, I think, if they had if they think of an innkeeper, he would be a rather nasty man who's refused uh, this beautiful young couple with a very pregnant young woman uh, room at his inn, and they've had to uh, find quarters in a, in a dilapidated stable. But there's no reason to think of him that way. I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt and um, imagine him in a Bethlehem overrun by um, descendants of King David who all had to go to their ancestral city for the census. Historically, there was no census, but Luke invents a census. Um, so he's uh, has an inn that is full to the corners, to the rafters of these, um, these uh, uh, descendants, um, royal descendants, uh, fictional and, and real. And he couldn't possibly, as a responsible innkeeper, fit anybody else in. But suddenly, I discovered in the process of writing, he feels a, a uh, current of sympathy between him and the young man who's at his doorstep. And um, there's a kind of um, sense of integrity, a lack of begging, a lack of whining on Joseph's part that really speaks to the innkeeper. And he finds himself suddenly picturing the, uh, the dilapidated barn uh, at the other end of the inn and, and realizing that they can stay there. It's not the most luxurious situation, but they're welcome to it. So there's a kind of... Um, compassion and generosity that I discovered in him um, amidst the very difficult situation of, uh, of the census. And that was my first experience of, of entering uh, a character. I, I was really excited by it because uh, it had never occurred to me to even um, imagine the predicament of an innkeeper who, who, who wasn't mentioned in uh, Luke's gospel. And then, um, then my next challenge was the ox. The ox and the donkey are, are, are traditional Christmas characters, but there's no mention of them in the gospel stories. Um, but it was uh, great fun to become an ox. My ox is a very solid citizen and um, has uh, the breadth of mind of um, Walt Whitman, for example, and um, also uh, a touch of pride at being a, a large kosher fellow, uh, which the donkey is not, um, not having cloven hoofs and not chewing a cud. He's also very um, casually proud of his meditative capacities. Um, he even mentions how in India, um, oxen and cows are, are worshipped. Um, he says it's no surprise that in a culture of meditators, ruminators are very highly thought of. So, so he, it's a, a very funny character, but also a, a, a touching one, I think, because to have the birth of the Messiah uh, described through the eyes of an animal uh, opens up all sorts of possibilities. And I, uh, I just enjoyed it so much. And then when it came to Mary, entering, 
entering her was was less difficult than you might think because I have uh, a woman of pure heart that I live with, my wife. And so all I had to do is um, enter what I know so well about Katie's reactions and uh, the complete surrender of a mind like that, the clarity of a mind like that, and, and the, the quality of love. This was this is second nature to me because I've been living with, with a person like that for so many years. Joseph also wasn't that difficult, even though I, uh, I haven't experienced the emotion of jealousy since I was 22 years old. But that, that brief experience with my first girlfriend is enough to give me an insight into the, the hell that feeling jealousy is and the uh, intense suffering of it, the, the um, closing off to reality that happens when you're caught in, in that emotion. And then um, the wise men, I've made them two, two of them instead of three and Jewish characters instead of Persian. Uh, and they go to, they travel to India to study with a, an enlightened master who has many characteristics in common with my old Zen master. But, so that's some of it, of the process um, through my, uh, through my Zen training, through all these years of meditation, um, I've learned how to, with a still mind, how to enter a point of concentration. And so that totally transformed my ability to, to, to translate and to write. It was a, uh, an experience of having enough concentration to, to uh, enter another reality, another mind um, without any reference to anything else in the world. So that's what the process was like, more or less. Wonderful. Yeah, I saw I saw an interview with you where you mentioned that for you, writing is a meditation. And you said um, it's a it's waiting on the edge of attention for a voice to appear. Well, that's accurate. Yeah. Um, with uh, with the kind of translation that I do, it's the same thing. Um, uh, the way I've translated poetry, it's um, it's as if you're hearing music in one ear and waiting for the silence in the, in the other ear to turn into an equivalent music. And what's important about that process, which has many similarities to the process of writing, is... Uh, that if you're patient, you get rewarded in all sorts of profound and subtle ways. So it's uh, cult cultivating the ability to do nothing and know nothing and simply wait for what you, you long for to appear in your mind. And uh, whether you have to wait for two minutes or two weeks doesn't matter. Uh, if if you if you master the art of patience, uh, you're you're very aware that it will come when it wants to come, and your job is just to sit there and be open and ready for it to come. Yeah. I also heard you say that the following about the what happens to you before you write a book. Tell me how you feel about this at this point. It, you said. When I know that a book is going to happen, there are two things that have to happen. I have to feel enormously challenged. I have to feel I can't do it. This is beyond me. I'm not mature enough or smart enough. And I also, you said also, there has to be the feeling I must do it. So I can't do it and I must do it. There's no choice involved. What was the what happened with this book? What was the what was that experience like for you? And how did the knowing come that this book was the next project? 
I've always been uh, attracted to the nativity and annunciation stories uh, since I was a little kid, actually. Um, I, uh, when I first um, learned about Christmas as a nine-year-old Jewish child in a Christian school, which took a, a lot of adjusting. But um, so it's been a, a long time love of mine. And um, when I finished my uh, my Joseph book my, uh, called The Way of Forgiveness, which is another uh, kind of midrash, uh, uh, an expansion of the story of Joseph and his brothers from Genesis. When I finished that, I was looking around for something else that I could do in that vein, an, another possible midrash. And somehow I thought of the nativity story and it seemed as you said uh, from that quote, impossible, something way beyond me. Um, but I was so attracted to it. It was almost a kind of erotic emotion, um, not, not sexual, but uh, that intense attraction. I thought, well, let me, even though I, I, I can't do it, let me try writing a few sentences and see how it goes. And I began with the innkeeper. And after a paragraph of that early chapter, I knew I, it was, it was genuine for me. There was a great adventure opening up in the words. I had found a tone that I felt was powerful and that, and, and, and convincing and authentic, and it sounded like me, although it was a different tone that I had ever written in before. So after that first paragraph, it, it, it was clear to me that the book was a book, that it was already written in a sense, and that all I had to do was um, follow the breadcrumbs. And uh, I had a first draft and after two or three months, actually. So oh, wow. it went very it went very quickly. And it was a good first draft. I didn't have to make many changes. Um, so so that knowing uh, occurred not before there were any words. That happens with some of my books, um, but after there were just a few words, it was uh, it was very clear, and I was couldn't have been more excited. And it 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 reads like it sounds like it came came through really quickly, and it reads it was a fast read too. But what I realize is that there was a lot to take in. It's a profound teaching story. Um, and one thing I, you I think you said in the um, in the afterward that your your editor had asked you to put more of your own personal voice in it. So that came after the first draft. Did it those interludes? Uh, the interludes, yes. Uh, in between each of the chapters, each of the characters' stories, uh, there's a, a, what I call an interlude. Uh, that didn't exist in the first draft. Um, when I sent the book to my editor, St. Martin's, he said, I like this very much, but I don't love it. I said, well, what would it take for you to love it? And he said, I want to hear more of your authorial voice. And um, I was... I was very interested in that reaction. Generally, in life and in, in books, I like to keep out of the spotlight. Um, my wife is the star of the family, and she's very comfortable in the spotlight, and I prefer to be backstage. But in this instance, um, I, was, um, I wanted to honor the insight of my editor, who's a, a very smart man, and see uh, what he might have been talking about. So... I, in the interlude chapters, I write from from the I, who is uh, actually me in certain ways and is not so much me in other ways, because uh, I discovered that there were all sorts of games that I could play with this authorial voice in the interludes that were really interesting and that, that might um, illuminate for the reader certain aspects of the original story and of the, of the expansion as I'm telling it. And um, so he, w I, I came to see that he was really right. And that, um, and that uh, the, 
authorial voice chapters, the interludes, really enrich the book in a, in a lot of ways uh, that uh, the book wouldn't have had otherwise. So that's how that happened. Yeah, it really added a lot, I felt, too. It was great. Now, I just want to remind our, our audience that Stephen will be taking your questions, so please feel free to keep them rolling in. Just click on the Q&A tab at the bottom of your screen on Zoom, and we'll get to as many of those as we can in the last 15 minutes of the conversation here. Um, you said, in my story, angels are reflections of human consciousness. Thus, the forms they take vary in accordance with the spiritual maturity of the observer. And the angel shows up differently for the shepherds, for Mary, for Joseph. Can you talk a bit about that? And what was your process in, in sort of meditating on or contemplating um, the angelic beings? Very good question. Uh, I should add, they appear differently to our little donkey as well. She's, yeah. she's another one who sees angels. Um, yeah, angels are a fascinating symbol. Um, the greatest of poets, uh, including Rilke and Wallace Stevens, um, were interested in angels and have angels in their poems. Rilke in a very, very prominent place in the Dewey No Elegies. Uh, the most famous thing he said about angels are, every angel is terrifying. And that's not the usual... Um, the usual, let's say, new age take on angels. We, we can get very silly sometimes with our imagination of, uh, of, of these creatures. Um, but I, I was very interested to explore what it might be like for a, a young woman of pure heart to be encountering an angel. And I didn't want him to be uh, in the form that we usually associate Gabriel with a, of a Renaissance painting. We've all seen the great Renaissance artists portray the Annunciation scene with a great um, gusto. And, um, and Mary always appears as a kind of um, earthly queen in satins and silks with an with a infant god on her lap. Um, although... Um, Kierkegaard said that was really blasphemy uh, to depict uh, a, a young Jewish girl in a poor village um, who has just undergone uh, a terrifying visit with an angel to depict her in this way. In any case, when I entered the figure of Mary, um, I could see that any conventionally Christian angel would have been inappropriate for her. So I imagined this angel as a, uh, a a circle of light that was the kind of the most um spiritual image that i i could find and it's a it's light that speaks although mary has a little trouble uh understanding him at the beginning she she gets accustomed to that so that was the most um non-human uh image that i could find for her with joseph Joseph is a, an extremely compassionate, righteous Jewish man, but is not on the same level of um, surrender as Mary is. So his angel is more like one of these Renaissance figures, although I've given him uh, green animal eyes to, uh, to pop it up out of the conventional a little, a little bit. Um, and then um, the shepherds see a much more conventional uh, angel, and um, the donkey sees not only ordinary angels, but seraphim and cherubim and all sorts. She, she's a, a, a somebody who comes from a tradition of visionary donkeys that uh, is described in a, in, a, in a story from the book of Judges. I won't go into that, but... Uh, she uh, is, aside from being miffed at the lack of respect that she's getting, uh, she is um, maintains her prickly individuality, and uh, it's it's a wonderful way to end the book. I thought. 
Yes, yes. Actually, in one of in one of those asides, it's it's a, within the Mary chapter. I have a little uh, riff on angels, uh, especially angels as seen by the great Catholic theologian Thomas Aquinas, who uh, who talks about them as the the essence of understanding. Angels, in his view, do not have to go through the process of deduction or logic or any kind of thinking the way human beings do, but they intuitively know and understand immediately and intuitively and completely. So it's the kind of uh, culmination of the intellectual clarity that Aquinas um, w- wanted for himself and for anybody talking about um, the spirit. And uh, I was very glad to include that in the Mary chapter as well. Yes. Yeah, it was lovely. And you also said this, if I can share a quote, you said around, you're speaking about the contemplation of the angelic beings. And you said, if you pursue this idea to its limit, you'll find yourself imagining an inconceivably joyful society of disembodied beings more numerous than the stars hierarchically ranked by the quality of their intelligence, all participating in the beatific vision to the fullness of their vast and vaster capacities. Yeah, that's, that's a mouthful, but uh, um, that, that's what angels were like for this great theologian. And I think um, given that they're imaginary beings, we can imagine them more precisely and with greater depth. And it gives um, another element to this uh, story, the Annunciation and the Nativity story. I think when we um, are able to go a little deeper than the usual uh, Christian concept of an angel. Right. One of the other things, Stephen, that I really appreciated was how you brought forward the the power and the beauty of certain traditional values that would have been present at that time that, you know, a lot of them we could really desperately actually use today. You presented this through the voice of the internal dialogue of the characters in a way that connected those values to very mature, clear-minded and loving spiritual insight rather than as as like a condemnation of those who commit sin. So one example I, I grabbed that I, I, I really liked uh, is when Joseph, uh, it's his th- thought process when he says of those who commit sin, these things could happen only when people didn't understand the first commandment, not to put other gods before the unnameable one. The idol of selfhood was powerful and seductive. And if you separated yourself from God by worshiping it, you walked down a path that led to almost irreparable harm for yourself as well as for others. That really stood out to me. I mean, in this day and age, there's a lot of, I mean, self-worship, narcissism, self-obsession, really. Um, Was that something that came into your mind as you were presenting some of these ideas? Not really. Uh, I think it's the human condition. And, you know, whether it's it's today or a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, um, that's what we do. We we act out of self-interest, most of us. And um, and it's not always loving. Um, This is uh, something that where I connected the story, I think, with Buddhist teaching although not explicitly, but it's not only Buddhist teaching, it's really any, any moral teaching of any of the great spiritual traditions. Um, in, uh, in Matthew's uh, story of the nativity, Joseph is called a righteous man. And Matthew says he was a righteous man. And that's why he decided to, to divorce her because, uh, because of her pregnancy. We usually, in our culture, think of righteous as something not entirely admirable, and it kind of um, um, melts into the word, uh, the phrase "self-righteous." That's uh, I don't know that anybody would would 
want to give you the compliment or me the compliment of being a righteous man. It doesn't really sound like something attractive. But in the Jewish tradition, and certainly for Joseph, righteousness was a question of um, being right with God, acting in a compassionate, um, generous way to everybody who came along in your life. So he, in his um, mental process in this chapter, he has to go through a, a very painful conflict between his great love for his fiancée and God's commandments as he sees, sees them. He, he feels that he, at the beginning, in the early part of the chapter, he can't even marry Mary, keep her under wraps until the baby's born, and then um, own the child as his own. Because, in fact, the child is a bastard. And in uh, the Bible, it says, the words of God are, uh, a bastard shall not enter the con congregation until the 10th generation. 10th generation. So he realizes that he would be doing great harm to any pious family that um, whose daughter would marry uh, the baby when he grew up because uh, they would be polluting their family, according to the Bible. So it's, a, it's an intolerable conflict. And he, with great pain and disappointment in his heart, realizes that he has to divorce her. And then later on in the chapter, he has a revelation and things appear very different to him. Um, and he's able to forgive her with his whole heart, even though she hasn't done anything to be forgiven for. So uh, it's a, uh, I go as deeply as I can into his process, but also into the whole uh, Orthodox Jewish culture that he would have been living in at the time. And, um, most people think of the Orthodox tradition at that time as something pretty uh, superficial and corrupt because of uh, the only place they've read about it are uh, the Gospels, which, which are very um, vicious toward the Pharisees. Um, but the Pharisees are actually uh, the, uh, the holder of the rabbinic tradition, which has many beautiful and... and um, wonderful and helpful qualities to it. So that's what I've tried to convey as well in the Joseph chapter, what what kind of um, moral circumstances he had grown up in and, and treasured for himself and made made him who he was, who Mary fell in love with. Yeah. Yes, it, it's, it was both Mary's struggle uh, and Joseph's struggle with this situation that they find themselves in um, was very moving. And, and it, it seems to me as the reader, like you were actually directly experiencing what they went through, that emotional, mental roller coaster that they went to, which for both of them leads to a complete surrender and giving over to the divine. Yeah, that's, you, you really have nailed it. Um, that's what the experience was like for me. Uh, I especially was amazed and so had such admiration for the, the characters as I, I drew out the implications in the gospel stories, especially for their courage. When you read the gospel stories of the Annunciation and the Nativity, courage wouldn't occur to you probably. Uh, Mary is told the news and says, okay, Joseph has an angel appear to him at night in a dream. And he says, okay. And it seems like a very simple process where courage or any kind of decision really isn't involved. But as I drew out the implications of that story, I, I felt that uh, courage is the essence of it. And it's what allows us to open up into the Christmas holiday because uh, these two of uh, these two magnificent characters who go through such difficult human processes. Yes. And you mentioned earlier that um, living with with Byron Katie, or as you affectionately call her, or and other people too, Katie, 
was an easy way for you to relate to how Joseph relates to Mary. And I, I really could actually feel that as in, in the writing, I felt this is, this must be how you relate to your wife. It is, it is even to the extent of, um, I have a little passage where Joseph talks about uh, the, the times um, Mary goes into ecstasies and that I write that from experience. I'm not inventing or imagining uh, that. So living with um, this extraordinary Bodhisattva uh, has given me a uh, much clearer sense of um, the depth of the world, of uh, what's possible for a human being. It, uh, it, it never occurred to me before that it, it might be possible to live a life without problems, without any anger, without any sadness, without any of the, that kind of emotion. And uh, that's what Katie's work has given her and, and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people across the world. So yes, I live close with, very closely with a, uh, a person who has that kind of purity of heart. It's wonderful. What's, what's and really, I, I want to say, I, I sit at her feet metaphorically. I mean, every day uh, is is a lesson for me about um, about love, and it's not personal. It's not her love for me that that I'm reacting to. It's it's love without an object, and it's the most beautiful thing in the world. Oh. I don't know if I can say anything after yes, that. It's no, kind I mean, of a climax. I think that's that's something that's beautiful just to take a moment for us all to just sort of sit with and absorb um, what you're communicating there. I, I, I really feel that. I, I'm curious uh, as to the, you know, you've, you've done uh, four books of, of Byron Katie's. You've co-written them with her. What was that process like for the two of you working together on those books? Interesting question. Um, yeah, the, the the other book that you didn't mention uh, that came out after the uh, uh, that bio, that little bio that you read, um, is called uh, A Mind at Home with Itself. And it's Katie's commentary on the Great Diamond Sutra, uh, the, the clearest and most profound of the, or you could say it's the most profound of the Buddhist uh, scriptures. And I, I did a rather free translation of it and read it to her and she riffed on it. But all the books were like that. Um, I would, it's simplest to describe um, a mind at home with itself. So, so I'll do that. I would read her the passage from the Diamond Sutra and uh, explain whatever needed to be explained about it. It's not the, not the simplest of texts. And then she would start talking and uh, go anywhere she wanted, whatever the passage would suggest to her. And sometimes I would ask her questions or um, kind of redirect her in a direction that I thought would be helpful to many readers. And so I gathered a lot of uh, raw material that way. Um, and then next I, I uh, edited it. And sometimes, you know, there would be, 20 pages of raw material. And after my editing, there would be one paragraph left uh, or a page left or whatever. Um, it was uh, choosing the, the most um, insightful of what she had said. It was all insightful in one way or another, but I had to make choices. And then I would send that edit to her and she would um, expand it and change it and, and follow the, the tracks and then I would edit that part and then she would edit my edit. So it was a, a conversation. Um, um, I loved, it was like making love really. It was, you know, taking her words and taking them into myself and translating spoken in her spoken English into written English. Um, and um, all the while remaining true to her voice and uh, 
I had a, I have a, a sense in my ear of what's authentic, Katie, and what's not. So, so it was like that. It was um, it was a uh, a process of back and forth, filled with um, with loving respect. And what made it work so easily was that at the beginning, he said, um, "You make the decisions about what to keep in and what to what to keep what to put, uh, take out." I won't be involved in that at all. So uh, I had complete freedom to do what I wanted with her words. So it worked out very well. What a deep trust between the two of you. Yeah, she she's not she she knows very well at the beginning. She's not a writer, and uh, actually, when when um, our old agent uh, first met her in 1999 and said, you know. I want to be your literary agent. Her response was, I don't have a book in me. Uh, I'd love for you to do whatever you want, become my agent. That's fine. But there's not going to be a book. I have a little 12 page pamphlet. That's enough. And uh, Michael said, actually there is, and I'm going to, I'm going to introduce you to Stephen Mitchell and we'll see what happens. (laughs) So that was how we met. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, we've got some nice audience questions rolling in here, and this one dovetails off what we're talking about. It's from Sarah, who asks, have you or Byron Katie ever had an intuition about having had past lives together? No. <laughs> <laughs> A simple answer. Now, uh, one of the... You know, I, I can add to that. You know, when, sure. when people... When people ask Katie about past lives, she'll usually say, um, think of what you were doing a half hour ago. That's a past life. Think of what you were doing a year ago. They're all past lives and they're not quite the same thing as who we are now, which is um, helpful to a lot of people who are maybe a little too attached to that particular spiritual concept it's all this continuation a continuum mm-hmm. she actually you know is one of the few people that i've known or heard of who lives in the radical present um, when she had her experience of awakening her past was literally wiped out they they uh she was at a halfway house at the time and after um a couple of days of, of this new consciousness in her, they, they brought her um, children to pick her up and her ex-husband. And uh, she didn't recognize them. She thought they were going to bring two and three-year-olds to meet her. And there was a, a 16-year-old, an 18-year-old, and a 22-year-old. So she, she had no uh, remnant of of who she was before and and uh she kind of adopted their story and uh that was fine with her uh, it was it was basically in a, a reaction like this too god okie dokie so uh she lives in the radical present there's never any kind of future or or much planning at all and uh, very rarely uh any um looking back at at a fictional past a past that has by necessity to be a fiction. Wow. Wow. If we can jump back into, into the the first Christmas, uh, the wise men, I was really fascinated by where you took that part of the story. Um, and there's a question from Nora that we'll get to in a moment, but maybe first, first of all, we all think of it as three wise men. And in this story, it's two. Was that based on, on something from the scriptures or history, or that was a choice you made? Um, I, I chose two rather than three because it was simpler, uh, to, to, uh, to imagine a character for both, both of the, those two, um, in the gospel story, there's no number. Uh, the wise men became three only four or five hundred years after the gospel stories were written. And they even beca- became kings at that point. 
uh, not only wise men, but kings. Um, and they came from Persia in the, in the Christian legends. Uh, I didn't feel bound by any of the uh, legendary traditions. What I was um, working from was the original gospel stories. That's where my midrash takes off from. So I wasn't bound by a number. I wasn't bound by an ethnicity either. Um, so I could just as well make my characters Jewish, which appealed to me because that's the whole context of this book. And um, so I, I, I made them very serious uh, uh, spiritual seekers who have been studying with the great Rabbi Hillel and, and he retires, he becomes too old. And they have a, an intense desire to meet a, a, an enlightened master. And they hear that there are such beings in India. So they travel to India and, and finally meet um, somebody who has what they are looking for. And he's a character who's based very closely on my old Zen master. So I don't know if that leads to uh, the question, but yeah, I think that's a good a spot to jump in with Nora's question. Uh, she's wondering, what do you see as the mythic symbolism of the wise men's gifts? Oh, you know, I I don't. Um, for me, they're they're um, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They're very expensive, so uh, they were uh, uh, a way of the wise men paying tribute to this young um, couple. But in the book, uh, it, it's, not, it's not so much the symbolism of the gifts that, that the wise men are considering, but the, the cost. And they, they figure that um, if, if the uh, young couple, whom they haven't met yet, they're still in India, if the young couple is poor, then uh, such an elaborate gift might be very helpful to them, although it might not be because um, um, money has its own entanglements. If they're rich, it will be an appropriate tribute. And they, they decide that they'll go ahead and, and bring the gold and, and frankincense and myrrh anyway and trust that the young couple, if they're poor, will be able to deal with it in a wise enough way. So that's their consideration. Uh, I wasn't particularly interested in the symbolism of the gifts, so I didn't imagine, I didn't go in that direction at all. Thank you. Mm. Uh, Maggie is wondering about uh, the, uh, the interludes that you put in. <clears throat> I don't know if you have a copy of the book with you. I do, I do, yeah. She says, she says I was fascinated by your addition uh, of Arthur, Arthurial interludes. Could you please read an excerpt of one of these? Is that something you're able to do for us, Stephen? Sure. Yeah. Let's let's see. Um, I might as well just arbitrarily read from the, the first of the interludes. Sure. Well, it's actually the second. Um, so arbitrarily, the second. Um, this is uh, comes after my chapter in the voice of the ox. So here, here's how I I deal with that. Um, it's probably unnecessary to mention this, but I have now stepped out of the ox and back into the authorial eye. I do this with no regrets, but I must tell you that I felt very comfortable as an ox. His mixture of intense solidity and immovable calm is something I know well. And the flavor of pride, I can find that too in myself whether it is as charming in me as it is in him is an open question. He is, as I am, a peaceable fellow, but those horns he's provided with, he knows instinctively how to use them. Here too, I can find the equivalent in myself, though I have used mine only once in defending a principle. To my great surprise, I enjoyed using them. Actually, it was fascinating to face the rogue matador, then gore and toss him. And in parenthesis, this metaphor is getting out of hand. But enough about me for the moment. How does the present chapter connect to the nativity story? Well, the ox was a given since he's part of our folkloric legacy. His messianic musings are another connection. 
He's open to all possibilities, as anyone with a Whitman-esque largeness of mind would naturally be. But he is rightly skeptical of Isaiah's promise that the wild will be domesticated someday. I too can imagine a world in which our equivalent of swords have been transformed into our equivalent of plowshares, but lions eating hay, wolves dwelling with lambs, not going to happen, nor should it. Would you want the magnificent, dangerous world of nature to become a Disney cartoon in which bluebirds circle about your head while serapi-clad squirrels serenade you in the shade? The vision that came to Isaiah out of his great longing is not something any mature person would want to see realized. What we long for in the outer world we can have within us, as Meister Eckhart and the Hasidic rabbi quoted at the beginning of this book realized, when the inner Messiah comes, we don't need an outer one. That's that interlude to the second chapter. Wonderful. And you can see you can see how many interesting directions, if you found it interesting, I did. Interesting directions I can go in even from sentence to sentence and paragraph to paragraph. So it it provide that idea of my editor provided me with a great freedom and I was uh, terribly grateful for that suggestion. Yeah, and, and this book, for everybody to know, it goes in many directions and there's a lot of surprises, wonderful surprises. But I think the, the thread, you just, you just quoted the, the underlying thread for all of, uh, all of us is the, that coming of the inner, inner Messiah and that Christ is born within us. Is that true? Yeah, that's, that's from Meister Eckhart. And uh, yeah, I, what, I've, what I've heard from people who are early readers of the book, which um, pleased me no end, was that um, many people are finding that one reading is not enough, that they need to go back a second or third time because there's, there's so much richness in it that they can't absorb when they're just following the storyline at first. And um, so um, my intention, if I had an intention for this book, besides providing you with pleasure, it would be that anybody who reads this book and then goes back to the Luke and, and Matthew gospel stories can never read them again in the same way. And that, our whole attitude toward Christmas has got to be at least very subtly changed from the experience of being immersed in, in the characters as I've imagined them. I hope that's so. I would love it if, if it is. I think that really comes through here. Yeah. I want to just take a moment to thank everyone in the Banyan Books community for all of your support. And for those of you who are here live, thank you for joining us and, and submitting your questions for Stephen. Um, a big thanks to everyone uh, on the staff at Banyan Books, Colin Limworth, uh, the founder and owner of Banyan, who's still uh, coming into the shop every day and running things. Uh, and Jacob Steele, our producer, who does uh, curates all of Banyan's events and uh, edits all of these podcasts. And he's, he's there uh, behind the scenes for, for everything that we're doing. Um, please follow us on YouTube. You can find uh, the Banyan Books In Conversation podcast on video. Um, you can subscribe and turn on notifications so you know when the new videos get posted. Or you can follow us uh, if you want to listen anywhere podcasts are, are posted, Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts, including the others. Um, so we've been speaking to Stephen Mitchell about his new book, the first Christmas, a story of new beginnings. And um, Stephen, I really want to thank you for taking the time to be with us this evening. Oh, it was my pleasure. And uh, I, as I said before, it's wonderful being connected with people again after the pandemic. So it's great experience for me. Thank you. Thank you.